open a little bit differently because I uh, I want to make sure that the old statement isn't true that in this process we miss the forest for the trees okay because I know that I've given you lots of details um, but I want to make sure that the primary things come through as primary the most important things are seen as most important and uh, what I'm going to do is uh, really just open the floor as we begin for any questions that you might have. This is, we, we've had really three pretty heavy sessions so far and a lot of information. And uh, are there any lingering questions? And when I say questions, of course, I mean in reference to anything that we've discussed so far, uh, because there's more to come. And so if you ask a question and, and, uh, and I say, well, I'll let you know if we're about to cover that or not, okay? Um, but anything that we've talked about so far that's a fuzzy thing, that why is that important? Why did you tell us about that? I don't even get why you mentioned that. Um, and, if, and up to this point, we're really just talking about the Old Testament, formation of the Old Testament and its transmission, textual criticism in general. Okay, so are there any questions that you'd like for me to answer before we, um, before we begin to move on tonight. Okay. I'll show you this, and then we're going to enter into kind of a new conversation tonight, which I hope will bring some clarity to some things that we've been talking about. So I'd like to show you a picture of a timeline. And uh, this is a timeline in its most basic format. I took everything that we've been talking about so far and I boiled it down to these few significant events, okay? Between 1400 and 400 BC, we have the writing that is the origin of our, new, of our Old Testament, okay? So it is being written between 1400 and 400. Th so there's, there's your thousand years. Okay, so then we know that 400, after the year 400, that prophecy ceases from the Hebrew people. And then it picks back up again with a prophet. And, and that prophet that comes out of the wilderness looking like a crazy guy is John the Baptist. Okay, but before that, there's a significant event. And that significant event is when the Torah and then the entire Old Testament was translated from the Hebrew language and some Aramaic into the Greek language, Koine Greek, common Greek, that is the common language of the day. That was completed over a time span. It wasn't a one-time event, but there's multiple manuscripts of this Greek Septuagint. Okay, Septuagint. Does anybody remember what this word Septuagint refers to? Why is it called the Septuagint? Because of the number 70? This is because of the number 70. It means 70 in Latin. And so it's, it's referencing the 70, but in reality, 72 men, supposedly, who translated the Torah in 72 days and miraculously they were all the same. So that's all it's in reference to, and we commonly say LXX for the Septuagint, and that's just Roman numerals for 70, okay? The New Testament, when it quotes the Old Testament, primarily is quoting from, right, from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, primarily. Not always, but primarily. So that's a significant event. Then we have... Next, I put a little red cross there because that's Jesus. That's a significant event, isn't it? And then, so time itself changes. Uh, of course, it didn't actually change then, but it did change later on. Um, and now we're no longer in B.C., but we're in A.D., and Odomini, year of our Lord. And so it begins supposedly at the birth of Christ, but they, they're a little off, probably about three years or so. So anyway, A.D. 50 to 95 is when our New Testament is written. Okay, our New Testament is written from about the year 50 to 95. The next significant event 
is in the year 405 that we've discussed so far, is in the year 405 in the Latin Vulgate translation. And who was the person who was uh, involved in the Latin Vulgate translation? Jerome. Did he translate the Vulgate of the, the Old Testament portion of the Vulgate, did he translate it from Hebrew or from Greek? From Hebrew, that's right, and that's significant because that was not common in the day. He was actually told, no, go ahead and translate it from the Greek because the Greek is the Bible. The Greek is the word of God. But Jerome thought otherwise. He went back to the Hebrew. Now, our Old Testament in English is primarily based off of how many manuscripts? Jeannie says one. Rochelle says one. One is correct. And the name of it is? Jeannie almost knows it. Huh? It does start with an L. Leningrad, that is. The Leningrad Codex. That's right. It is the oldest surviving complete copy of the Hebrew Bible. And the Dead Sea Scrolls do predate the Leningrad Codex, but it's not a complete Old Testament. And it's entirely missing the book of Esther. Okay? But the Masoretes were translating this were translating the, uh, well, translating's a bad word. They were making manuscripts with edits um, between the years 500 and 1,000. And that is where we have our English Old Testament based from today. How many years after the original Hebrew text was that? Let's just take the year, the latest dates, okay? 1,400 to 1,000. 2,400 years. 2,400 years. What? I mean, that's a long time. That's a very long time. How can we be sure that the books that are in our Old Testament and the books that are in our New Testament, what we're talking about tonight will work kind of for both, how can we be sure that the books that we have are the right books, are the only books? Is God still speaking today and we need to add to our canon of Scripture? What about these ancient works? Should they be added to Scripture? As we talked about the Apocrypha, the Pseudepigrapha, are, are these ancient texts worthy of being part of our Old Testament canon or, as we're going to see soon, our New Testament canon? Why or why not? The question I want to ask tonight is this. What makes a book part of the canon? What makes a book part of the canon? Did everything that Paul the Apostle wrote end up as scripture? Everything he wrote. No, there are actually multiple letters that he references in scripture that we don't even have. He wrote more letters to more churches, but we don't have those and they're not part of scripture. Was Paul the man, the inspired one, and everything that came from him was divine authority? No. So naturally, everything he wrote is not going to be scripture. I mean, he's not just a scripture machine. Everything he says, everything he writes is scripture, right? But some of them are and some of them are not. What made some of Paul's letters scripture and some of them not scripture? That's an interesting thought. Here are some of the things that um, are noted actually by Josephus. Josephus was who? Jewish historian writing in what century? The first century. So that's significant for us, right? Because he is at the beginning of the church era, and he is writing in Greek, the same Greek that our New Testament is written in. And so he's well acquainted with both the Jewish people and with these early Christians. So it's a very significant source. Now, it's not scripture, right? Okay, it's, it's, it's not infallible. But we can reference it for historical things. And Josephus notes four things that were important to the Jews in understanding what books should be part of the canon and what books should not be part of the canon. And ultimately, it just boils down to four points here. So we'll look at those four points together. What makes a book part of the Old Testament canon? B, 
because what makes books part of the Old Testament canon is actually a little different than what makes books part of the New Testament canon. What we're saying here is there's kind of a test. Let's just say that you were a Jewish community and a scroll ends up in the hands of the primary teacher. How does he know that that's scripture from God, if it's divine, if it has authority for your community, or whether it does not? How does he know? Well, it came to be that there were four tests for canonicity, and it's these four points. Number one, it does not contain contradictions. It was written by a prophet or someone recognized as having divine authority. It originated through inspiration from God, and it was accepted by the Jews as authoritative material. Some of those are going to be very similar to the New Testament canon. Okay. Now, these four points we have to see as just ge a general idea of how they saw their materials. Okay? Because, again, this is not cut and dry, black and white information. But we have a general idea of kind of the things they were looking for. They knew that if a scroll ended up in their community that, say, for example, um, contradicted itself, they would say, God does not contradict himself. This cannot be of divine inspiration. It contradicts itself. Now, there are some today who say that the Bible contradicts itself, correct? We're going to look at some of those supposed contradictions here in the near future. Okay. Let's look at the same question, but for the New Testament canon. What makes a book part of the New Testament canon? Four things, again. Was the book written by an apostle or at least someone of recognized authority? Most of the time, this had to do with, did they have a relationship with an apostle? Also, did it ag agree with the canon of truth? Now, the canon of truth, that's a tricky little phrase there because what it really means is uh, apostolic teaching. Did it agree with the body of truth that's been established so far as apostolic teaching? Did it enjoy universal acceptance? I wouldn't phrase it like that, but you get what it means. And then number four, does it have self-authenticating divine nature? You can see how these are very similar, right, to the Old Testament canon. Very similar. All right. I see that some of you are writing, and so I'm giving you just a little bit of time before I go on to the next slide. Now, we're looking at what makes a book part of the canon. The, it would be very easy to think then what our canon is, our 39 books of the Old Testament, our 27 books of the New Testament, this is a man-made collection. It may lead us to think that. I'm going to argue that it's not, of course, and we don't believe that. But what it could mean is that people got together in large communities and said, we like this one, but we don't like that one. Let's get rid of that one. Let's not include that one. But other little communities did include it. generally, history sides with the majority, right? Whoever wins out. I was talking about this with someone the other day, but history is kind of written by the victors. You go and you conquer a city and you demolish them along with all their history and their materials. Whoever hears about them, you wipe them off the face of the planet and from history. So you kind of, the side you hear is from the people who won. So, at the same time, we, we might think that of Scripture. Well, a certain group won. Some said, yes, we want that to be part of our Old Testament. Some said no. And a group won, and that's what has historical acceptance. But is it all a man-made process? If, if we conclude that it's all a man-made process, we need to abandon everything we know because it's all just a collection of materials that have been changed over time to produce a particular result that people wanted it to produce. So in other words, we're going to get this material together, not those, because we don't like what they say. 
it doesn't push forward the narrative. We all know what that's like. You only give the material that pushes forward the narrative that you like. Is that what scripture is? Well, it pushes forward the narrative that God likes, which is the narrative of truth. So in one sense, yes, but the thing is that it's God doing it, but he's using secondary agents, that is mankind, to push forward his, pal- his plans and his purposes. Okay? Does God use secondary agency to accomplish his purposes and his will? Does he use prayer? And who prays? People. But yet God is the one doing it, and it was God's plan to begin with. So God uses secondary agency to accomplish his purposes. So could God not use secondary agencies such as a community who accepts books, and go, but God is using that? You understand what I'm saying? So this is all, it's, it, man is doing it, but yet God is doing it. We have to look at the more plain, obvious thing. Who wrote the material? Men. Was God using secondary agency? Yeah, he was using people, but was it God doing it? Well, yes, it was. God, this is how God works. Actually, I think the more we understand that, the more we will be a praying people because we will understand that God uses our prayers for his purposes. Okay, so you got that so far. So here's a statement here. Think about this. Canonicity is not simply something that happens to a book by a community. But a book is canonical by its very nature and existence. Think about that for a second. A book is not simply, or canonicity is not simply something that happens to a book. Okay? I'm a rabbi of a Jewish community, and something, I don't know, somebody on a donkey brings me a piece of paper, and I say, wow, I mean, this is real short, but it's real good. I like it a lot. I'm going to, let's add that. Okay, good. Um, I, I decided that because uh, I like it. So when did it become part of the canon? When it was over here? Or when I picked it up and put it in my book? When did it become part of the canon? Why when it was over there? Because canonicity is not something that happens to a book. But it, by its very nature and existence, is already part of the canon before it's accepted as part of the canon. Which leads us to believe that there are different definitions of the word canon. Correct. Let's look at those definitions. Definitions of canon. Number one, I'm taking this, by the way, from uh, Michael Kruger, who wrote a book called The Question of Canon. Uh, if you're interested in that, okay? So these three definitions are Michael Kruger's definitions. I think this was eye-opening for me when I first read them. I think it's very helpful for our discussion. What is the canon of Scripture? Well, let's define the word canon because we don't all mean the same thing. All of these are true, but true at different times. Okay, so let's just think about it. The exclusive canon. That's the first way we can describe the canon, and it's its most common way. What is that? The exclusive canon is a completed list of authoritative books. Do we have an exclusive canon? A completed list of authoritative books. Do we have that? Sure. But that's only one definition of three that we're going to give. Sometimes when we think of the word canon, that's all we think of, isn't it? What is the canon of Scripture? 66 books. It's completed and it's authoritative. Yes, that's true. That's a proper definition. But there's another definition to the word canon. And the next is this. The next is the functional canon. Not only an exclusive canon, a completed list of authoritative books, but it has a functional property to it. And so that means this, functional canon. Any book that the church recognized as authoritative. Okay, so I'll give you an example on that count. We're a community, a Jewish community, and, uh, or in the New Testament, a small church, right? Let's, let's take a New Testament perspective. We're a small New Testament church in Philippi. And we receive one day what? A letter from Paul, known today as Philippians. We receive that. But the church in Corinth 
has not received that letter. Correct? So the church in Philippi had a fuller canon than the church at Corinth for a time, did it not? Yes, it did. Because it becomes functionally part of their canon before it officially becomes part of the widespread canon. Does that make sense? So there is a functional canon. The functional canon is not continuing to function today. That is, we are not going to get a letter from an apostle and we say, you know what? We accept this as part of our canon and soon the whole world will. That's not working like that anymore, okay? Um, So, but we get how this would work. Next, uh, third and final definition. The ontological canon. The word ontological meaning... uh, being, existence, okay? So the canon, the ontological canon means this. The ontological canon is the author- the, are the authoritative books God gave to the church before they were part of the functional canon and before they were part of the exclusive canon. You understand? When did Philippians become part of the canon of Scripture? When the letter arrived at Philippi? When did it become part of the canon of Scripture? In one sense, I understand what you're saying, but not the answer I'm looking for. When, as soon as he wrote that last sentence and it was done, God was, God was authoring that as part of the authoritative canon of Scripture as it was being written. And as soon as it was done, it, it's, done it's in my hand still. I haven't even rolled it up to give to who? Who took the letter to Philippi? Epaphroditus, sure. And so, he gives the letter to Epaphroditus, take this back with you, and when they read it, they'll understand what you're doing here. Right? That's how that worked. So, when did it become part of the canon? When the universal church accepted it and wrote it on a list? No. When one church community received it and it functionally became part of their canon? No. When did it become part of the canon of scripture? When it was written. That's right. And so we can see how these three definitions all work, right? All three definitions are correct. So I have the same thing I said before we looked at these definitions, but I put a few things in parentheses here. Let's look at that next one. Canonicity is not simply something that happens to a book by a community. Notice I said simply. It is not simply something that happens to a book by a community. That is the exclusive and functional part of the canon. That happens to a book. But a book is canonical by its very nature and existence, which is its ontological definition. Does that make sense? Ask, tell, uh, tell me if it does not, so we can clarify. Does that make sense? Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Uh, we'll take that. Okay. Let, let's say it this way as well. Books do not become authoritative, that is part of the canon, because the church accepts them. The church did not create the canon. They recognized and accepted the canon. Okay? There are people, though, who say that the church created the canon of Scripture. Right? Who are those people? Can you give me one name? Huh? Catholics? No. You know anybody out in this world who's out to prove Christians wrong who says man-made canon, man-made scriptures? All phony stuff. Bart Ehrman. Yeah. Who in the room's ever heard of Bart Ehrman? Just a couple. Okay, in a couple of weeks, you're going to be very well acquainted with Bart Ehrman. Okay? The reason being is because he is offering a tax on this very thing, trying to prove it wrong. Now, Bart Ehrman, I've been researching Bart Ehrman and learning some things about him. Do you know where he graduated? His first theological education came from? Moody Bible Institute. Hmm? I went to the Moody Bible Institute. Hmm? But then... He went to Wheaton. Hmm. 
They're both in Illinois. Uh, and then he went to uh, some Ivy League schools. Point being, Bart Ehrman is actually a very intelligent person, well-trained in the biblical languages and in theology. He's actually very intelligent. But is that what matters? Do you know some really, really dumb people who are really, really smart? Yeah, I mean, what is the beginning of wisdom? Does Bart Ehrman fear the Lord? Absolutely not. And so therefore, he has no wisdom, although he has great intelligence. And on this, he is wrong. And we'll be talking about that a little bit more. So let's look at the process. Huh? He's going to tax it? He's going to tax it. He attacks it. I don't know. The Bart Ehrman tax. I don't know. (laughs) Okay, so here's the steps in the process of canonicity. I have made these three points here. Um, I, I think this is a very helpful way. Paul Wegner uh, says some very similar things here. Uh, I've, I've, s- I've taken the ideas and, and kind of made them a little bit more my own for our purposes here. Okay, so just acknowledging this is not entirely 100% original to me. Uh, Paul Wegner wrote a book called From, From Text to Translation. That's a really helpful uh, book. Um, but here's what I would say. Step one, the books are composed and circulated. That's step one, okay? We're not talking about composition and circulation necessarily because um, those are theological matters. In fact, it, it seems to be that all of the canon is a theological matter because you can trace certain points historically and acknowledge that all these manuscripts exist, right? But at some point, which I believe needs to be at the beginning, theology has to drive this whole concept. But anyway, the books are composed and circulated. We believe in divine inspiration. We believe in verbal plenary inspiration. Does anybody, can anybody give me a definition of verbal plenary inspiration? The two words are important before the word inspiration. Um, Before I define it, remember that the Bible is both a human and divine book, meaning that God did not override a person's personality. Uh, He did not make them just a robot who wrote, but he preserved their personality, their experiences. Even the the words they knew, like Paul uses certain words and phrases that John doesn't use and vice versa. Some Greek is written really well and and they obviously were trained in how to write. Other Greek is kind of sloppy, hard to read. It's not great. But God preserved that in them while at the same time writing his perfect word through them. So they were inspired men who wrote, but not as robots, but as people. God used that. Verbal plenary inspiration means that God gave them the very words to say and every word they did say is inspired. Verbal and plenary, all of it, all the words. Which is why we look back to the original languages because we want to know what? All the words that were originally said. Does this make sense? Is every word of your Bible inspired? Or are only some? Is every word inspired? In what language? In the original language that it was originally penned in, correct? But when they were copied, not every word was copied the same. There were mistakes made 
as scribes copied those manuscripts. And so we don't have any that we can say, this is exactly word for word what the original said. We have to do a process called, what's the process of determining what the original said? Textual criticism. Comparing our manuscripts to see what was the original wording. Why are we concerned with the original wording? Because we believe in verbal plenary inspiration, meaning every word is inspired by God. And so the words matter. What word matters? It's not the general idea alone that matters, but the words given that matters, which is why an essentially literal translation in English is important rather than a thought-for-thought translation. Sometimes you can look to a thought-for-thought translation to get a general idea, but then return for sake of doctrine to an essentially literal translation. Does this make sense? Okay, so the books are composed and circulated. That's the first step. The next step is this, that the books are read and recognized. So a, a, a letter is written by Paul to the church in Philippi. He gives it to Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus takes it to the church. They read the letter. They say, this is great. Someone visits them or they go to another church. They take a copy of the letter with them. And then they say, this is great. This is from the apostle Paul. He founded our church too. So they make a copy of it. And they make a copy of it. And it begins to be circulated. And it begins to be read and recognized as having apostolic authority. In other words, divine inspiration, it is truth. This is the truth of God from the Apostle Paul. And so they take it and they accept it. And then they say, you haven't read that letter to the church in Philippi yet? Let me go make you a copy and I'll bring it back to your church. You need to have that. And then we are the lucky recipients of having all of those things contained in one book that the church universally read and recognized as having authority. And then the final step is that after time, they would say, yes, I have that one, okay, but I don't have, I don't have the one, the second one, you're saying there's more than one to the church in Corinth. We don't have that one yet. And so you make a list. You say, okay, I have that one. Okay, good, I've got, okay, I've got, these are all the ones from Paul. Are these all the ones that he wrote? And the church universally says, yes, you've got them all. That's, that's, this, these are the ones that the church has universally accepted as true from the Apostle Paul. We're just talking about Paul's letters right now, okay, for the sake of illustration. And say, so, okay, we say we've got them. And what have I just made? A collection. And that collection is then added to a larger collection. And we call that collection, once it is completed, the exclusive canon. So it becomes part of the functional canon first in the church community, and then part of the exclusive canon as they say, we got them all, case closed. We've got them. I make it sound very cut and dry, but it is not. Because when did the church first agree that they had all of them? That's a messy situation. When was the first list of the canon of the New Testament? You see, when you look into these things, you realize that the establishment of the Old Testament canon is rarely disputed apart from the Apocrypha and Pseudepigrapha, which we talked about last week. But we, we, I think we clarified that a little bit. Um, and we looked at the Tanakh. We looked at Jesus' words from Luke 24. Do you remember that? Okay, and so... Uh, we, under, we kind of understand that situation. Um, but what about the New Testament? The New Testament is what is very commonly attacked. Very commonly attacked. You don't even know what books there are. Why don't you accept the Gospel of Thomas? Why, don't you, why is that not part of your scriptures? It's ancient as well. And so the the story goes, the argument goes, people were just collecting all this material and they were pushing forward the narrative they wanted to push forward and only the books that made it in there, the books they wanted to make in there. And there you have it. So you see, it's all just a man-made situation. 
And that's how the argument goes. But we know better than that. And we're going to continue to talk about the New Testament canon in particular, just as we looked at the Old, we're going to turn our attention and look at the New Testament canon, okay? Um, I'll say one more thing in summary here, and then I'll see if you have any questions about any of that. Books do not become authoritative because the church accepts them. That's the incorrect way of viewing our Bible. The church did not create the canon of Scripture. They recognized the canon. They accepted the canon. The canon existed outside the church in its ontological fashion. That is, God created it. And then functionally, the church recognized it over time and then universally accepted them exclusively. That's how it works. Okay? That process. That's really what I wanted to cover for tonight because um, it kind of summarizes and closes our Old Testament conversation. We're going to turn our attention to the New Testament and we're going to look at some very similar things as we did to the Old. Okay, so uh, I'll return to my very first uh, part of this as we started tonight, but do you have any questions about any of this material so far? Anybody? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, is God preserving his word over time and how is he doing so? He's doing so by means of his people. Right? That's secondary agency. Yeah. That's right. And so, yeah, that's, that's a good point, is that God is also using people to recognize them. Right? He's, he's saying that is, that is the word of God, and the, and the church community accepts it, and that's why that was a test for canonicity. Are the Christians generally receiving these as authoritative? That's a test for canonicity for them in the early church. If, if we are, we're all agreed. And is God going to lead the entire church community to not believe and accept these? And so, uh, yeah, absolutely. Good point there. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. But even then, can there be errors in the church, even in large portions of the church, even for large periods of time? Because what Bible has primarily been the church, or the, the, the primary translation of the Bible? What, what has been, let me rephrase this question without stuttering. What Bible translation has been used and accepted for the greatest amount of time? What Bible is that? The Latin Vulgate. Containing what? The Apocrypha. So the church, it, they had many problems, many doctrinal issues, right? Till Luther and the Reformation, right? And he cried, what? He, he said, let's go back to the sources. Erasmus went back. He had a Greek translation. They were compiling the Greek text, and they said, it's important for us to go back because we've gotten so far off track. We need to go back. And so they reformed the church on this basis. Right? I went down a rabbit hole there. I don't even remember what we were talking about. Yep. Mm-hmm. Adds to or takes away from. Not what it says. Not what it says. Yeah. This book. This book. What would that have referenced? Book of Revelation only. Because it, it, it existed as a solitary work at the time see it had not been circulated it had not been accepted it had not been copied and it had not been added to a collection yet so those words referenced only the book of revelation but yet we can make application and say yes this is true to god's word but the specific reference there was to the book of revelation only yeah
Mm-hmm. Oh, so are you saying, was he aware that what he was writing in that moment was by divine inspiration? It seems as though he's affirming that, that look, Timothy, you've known the Holy Scripture since you were a child, you've studied them, mm-hmm. and the things I'm teaching you here, um, you know. They're on par with that. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. And Right. Right. I I think absolutely, because even at times he also says to certain churches, make sure and have this letter read among you, and when you're done, send it over to that church. And by the way, another letter I read, make sure you read that one. Why would he have been so forceful and authoritative with that? He knew that what he was writing was authoritative. He knew that it had authority for the churches. He recognized the position that the Lord had put him in, an apostle. Right, And so he knew that the Lord was using him to build his church, to write to these churches, and to spread his word. Absolutely. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, think about this too. Think about the great persecution that the early church was going through, and they could not turn to Romans 8, 28 and 29. You can. You can. But we choose not too many times. But we can. Right? We have the word right here in such an easy format for us to read. It's all collected right here together. We don't even have to, like, you know, go, oh, I got to go get a different scroll from the garage. You know, I, I, it's all, I mean, it, it, easier than that, it's, it's electronically delivered to us. You know, and we can search for words and concepts and we can look for cross-references and, you know, uh, yes, it is a great blessing uh, to us to have it in the format that we have. Um, but at the same time, there was such fervor and zeal. I, I was, uh, uh, it, it occurred to me, and I think it's true, um, a majority of the population in the Greco-Roman world would have been illiterate illiterate Um, and so who was copying all these and who was reading them if you can't read or write who's copying them and who's reading them Uh, well they were definitely trained and that's significant isn't it just as Paul was training Timothy and he said until I come give attention to what the public reading of scripture because they can't read it for themselves. What? Well, it was primarily because they couldn't practice their faith the way they thought right. And they were Calvinists, and they said, you really, you kind of want to kill us here. Uh, you're very oppressive to us. You're putting us in a box. We hate this. Uh, what can we do here? They tried different situations. That didn't work out. And so they, pff, they came over here. And we're glad they did. I'm glad they did. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's, it, it's putting them in a box. That was the thing. There's pressure from the outside world. And we're experiencing much of that pressure. Uh, no. No, th- no, uh, no, no, because I'm, I, I don't claim to be a Greek scholar. Um, I know enough to get by, um, but 
I think it's very important for all of us, just like I do with any Bible translation, is that we need to understand comfortably the words that we're hearing and receiving and reading. Um, and so that is why, that's one of the reasons, not the only reason, but when people are, you get very familiar with a Bible translation, say you grow up, grew up with the KJV or something, and you, you, you can't comprehend the actual word structure. You need to get a Bible that you can comprehend, you know, uh, and be able to actually read and hear it in the language that God made you. Now, we do, like I did on Sunday, when there are certain key issues that are very prevalent in the text, and I say, hey, let's point this out, let's notice this, because in the original, look at what you can see here, and there are things I actually left out, right, Rochelle? There, that, that well was a little deeper that Rochelle got an earful of one day, but uh, that it went more, but I didn't give you all that. I, I had to say what was significant at the time and uh, what I thought was important. And so that's what I uh, tend to do is I, as I always, when I prepare a sermon, I do always look at the original languages. Um, it doesn't mean I do so perfectly, uh, but I, I do so to see what is being said. I even compare the critical text with in, in Philippians, I compare it with P46 and I see how does the critical text edition compare to the earliest edition? Just to see if there's anything significant. Yes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great point. Yeah. Yeah. Right, and that goes back to inspiration, doesn't it? How did God inspire the Bible? In what language? And with what words? And how can that best be represented in the language we speak and read? And so that's the translation that we want to land with. I know I preach from an ESV, but I never always stick to an ESV when I'm studying. I, I, I compare different translations. I look at the originals, and there's no... Uh, the Word of God in English is, is, is a translation, right? It's a translation, yes. And if it only mattered in English, then the original languages wouldn't matter. We wouldn't need to study them. We just say, oh, English is good enough. It doesn't matter. We'll just trust the translators. Right? And for the most part, we can. For the most part, we can. Well, there's definitely truth to that, but um, I mean, it's not like a A plus B equals C situation. Where it's like, well, I plugged it in. I mean, it should come out the other end. Just I should understand it perfectly. Uh, the whole church should agree perfectly on what the Bible says. Uh, that's a great argument against Christianity. If your God is true, if your Bible is true, then why don't you all believe the same thing? Um, uh, because sin certainly gets in the way. But I will say, the Holy Spirit inspired the Bible as it was written. The, Holy, the same Holy Spirit now lives in us and gives us wisdom and understanding and comprehension of the very words that he wrote. You know? He's not looking at a foreign text and saying, hey, I'll help you understand that. Let me translate it for you. I think I know what it says. It's like he wrote it. And uh, he is communicating it to us. Absolutely. But, again, secondary agency is significant. Right? Because if you don't know how to read you don't know how to understand sentence structure, arguments, all of a sudden we need to, you don't understand historical detail, all of a sudden study makes a lot of sense. Because God is not going to necessarily just imbue you with a bunch of historical context that you've never studied before. And all of a sudden you have all this wealth of knowledge of, you know, first century Philippi, where it was on a map geographically and the struggles they had. It's just, it's not going to happen. But are you going to understand 
the main concept and what, what it, I, I, be, I believe so. There are passages, some passages that are easy to understand, some that are difficult to understand. Okay, anything else before we close for tonight? Okay, so beginning next week, we're going to start to look at uh, the New Testament in some more detail. And again, please, I, I know you. there are questions and things that I'm not saying and things that I've said that you want to talk about a little more. So if you want to do that but don't feel comfortable in this public format, write it on a piece of paper and drop it in the little box right there, and we'll talk about that. Okay, I promise that. I don't promise that I'll have perfect answers, but I do promise that if I don't have an idea that I'm going to look into it for you so that we can all benefit from your question. Okay? All right. Well, let's pray for tonight. Lord, thank you so much for your word. And uh, this is something out of the ordinary for us that we don't normally kind of take a step back and say, what are we doing here? Because we focus so much on your word and we just go through whole books of the Bible and we've just, that's all we're doing and we're looking at your word and we're singing about your word and we're praying about your word and it seems everything is about the word but we've taken a step back and said, what is the word? Where did it come from? And I pray that you would just bless our efforts here and our understanding and I pray that it would have great significance and value to us um, and that we would truly um, see your word delivered down to us as valuable and precious and that we would accept it for what it is, the very word of God. So God, give us understanding and wisdom as you do uh, by your spirit in us. Lead us, guide us into truth and protect us from error. Help us now, keep us safe as we go home. I know the weather's uh, uh, kind of bad outside, but I pray that you would protect us Pray for all those tonight who uh, weren't with us. Pray for your hand of blessing on them. I pray that you would bring us all together again on Sunday morning for worship. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.